Welcome to the Space Store Podcast. You're listening to Season 4 of the Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of Season 4, Episode 4, A New Era in the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, with astrophysicist and author Piers Horner. We discuss what Piers finds most fascinating about the search for intelligent life forms across the universe, how we might seek to detect these potential alien civilizations in the future, how SETI, or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, will be crucial in helping exploration, and we take a sneak preview into Piers' upcoming second book, looking at the future of exploration and lots more. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of seasons 1, 2 and 3 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode on Space Store Live. We're back tonight on our Thursday night talks with the one and only Piers Horner. Hey Piers, how are you? Hi, not too bad, thank you. How are you doing? Awesome, yeah, good to see you again. Um, for those of you who tuned in a few episodes ago on the Space Talk, we had Piers talking about his first book, Short Stories of Space, which you can find on Amazon, Kindle, or wherever you else uh, you buy your books. Go ahead, check it out. I've read um, a few of the short stories in here, and I've got to say uh, the way you talk about space, um, Piers, is very unique. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think I embarrassed myself a little bit last time by kind of admitting like how strong my connection was to the constellation of Ryan, uh, which I think may have freaked a few people out, but uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. We've got a bunch of space enthusiasts on here, just like ourselves. Um, so nothing to be embarrassed or afraid of. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, um, Piers has a PhD in astrophysics and he studied galaxy clusters and cosmology. Uh, now, tonight's talk is a little bit different from that. Uh, we're talking about a new era in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. What's that going to be about tonight, Piers? Well, so it's a little sneak preview into uh, one of the stories that I'm writing currently for the follow-up uh, to Short Stories of Space. Um, and it's it's kind of looking at how um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which was a really big thing when I was growing up and something that really like excited me about, about uh, astrophysics, actually, um, just how it's, it's kind of changed over time. It's kind of, lots has been happening over the past kind of 20 years, but it's, it's not necessarily been quite as at the forefront of, of sort of, um, of, of science discussions as it, as it was in the past. But I think actually, you know, the time is, is, is soon coming when it's, it's going to be coming back onto the forefront of, of that discussion. And there's some really interesting kind of projects coming up, uh, which are going to revolutionize the way in which we can search for other intelligent species out in the universe. So I'm just going to give you a, a little bit of a, a preview into what I'm writing about that at the moment. Awesome. Well, I'll let you take the stage away. But before that, just a reminder to anyone tuning in, make sure you subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And if you have any questions throughout uh, tonight's talk, feel free to let us know in the comments on YouTube or Facebook. All right, Piers, hope you enjoy it. <laughs> well, thanks very much. And I hope you all enjoy it, obviously. Um, but yes, as I say, uh, this short little talk is going to be a quick kind of preview of one of the stories that I'm writing at the moment. Um, we're going to be talking about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the search essentially for uh, 
intelligence like our own, I guess, uh, out there in the rest of the universe. Um, and we tend to think of, of the sort of notion of, of uh, aliens and, and intelligences uh, such as our own as, as being a fairly modern uh, kind of idea. Actually, it's got a really long heritage. Uh, there's a discussion about uh, the sort of a cosmic plurality, which is about a uh, whole infinity of worlds out there, possibly uh, actually populated by uh, different species such as our own, right back at the time of the Greeks, so the early Greek philosophers. Um, but if we move to the first slide, it's probably fair to say that the sort of modern discussion uh, about uh, search for extraterrestrials and, and the ideas of, of aliens kind of dates back to around 1877. And this lovely diagram here is uh, a really beautiful uh, pencil sketching by the Italian uh, astronomer uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli, um, who was basically observing uh, Mars with a little telescope from uh, from his observatory in Milan. And uh, he was spending hours and hours and hours staring through his telescope, uh, trying to map the dark features that he saw on the surface of Mars. And in those tiny little pockets of, uh, of little moments where the atmosphere uh, in the skies above Milan was a, a little bit more stable, um, he thought that he started to see some really like linear features that seem to connect some of the uh, the dark areas of, of Mars. And you can see those in, in this drawing here. So you've, you've got the sort of dark areas around Mare Australia, for example. Uh, but then you've got this crisscross kind of pattern of straight lines uh, that connected different areas on the surface of Mars. And Schiaparelli called these uh, features canali. Um, and in Italian, that just refers to straight line features or linear features. Uh, but when news of his observations ended up reaching uh, England and other parts of, of the Western world, uh, the sort of allusion or, or the similarity, of, obviously, between the word canali and canals was something that was uh, very much picked up on. And um, um, Schiaparelli himself didn't necessarily believe that these features were uh, artificial features, but the idea that because they were straight line features, they've been called canali, they sound like canals, that they could actually represent uh, artificial features on the surface of Mars, which had been created by some kind of uh, species similar to ourselves living on Mars, uh, really quickly uh, kind of built up some momentum and, and there was some excitement behind it. And somebody who was really key to all this uh, was the American uh, businessman and astronomer Percival Lowell, um, who uh, built his own observatory essentially to follow up on these observations at the end of the 19th century and try and study these, these mysterious straight line features uh, and, and observe them um, in even more detail. And Lovell was, was uh, not only was he a businessman originally, uh, an astronomer as, through his interests, uh, but he was actually a travel writer uh, before he sort of started to dedicate most of his time uh, to actually studying Mars. And um, he was very good at popularizing the idea that these straight line features were actually uh, features created by uh, a civilization living on Mars. Uh, and he was also uh, talked about how differences in the color of different features on the surface of Mars pointed to there actually being agriculture that was happening uh, on the surface. Um, if we move on to the next slide, um, that created a lot of 
excitement and, and at the very start of the of the 20th century uh, there's a heck of a lot of excitement about this idea that actually there could be another civilization living on Mars um, but just as quickly as, as that excitement had kind of built up as telescopes got better and uh, astronomers be able, began uh, being able to actually observe the features on the surface of Mars and the colors of, of the, the surface of the planet uh, in ever more detail um, those straight line features uh, kind of melted away and pretty quickly people realized that they were actually artifacts uh, that had to do with, for example, um, just sort of uh, illusions of the eye rather than anything that was actually real. Uh, and here we have, um, so the image on the right is, is from the Hubble Space Telescope, so uh, at the start of the 20th century they certainly weren't seeing uh, the surface of Mars as clearly as that, but you can kind of see um, there's a superimposed kind of image of, the, of those, those straight line drawings on the left hand side there. And you can see that um, actually where all the straight lines sat, they don't really kind of correspond to any real feature on the surface of Mars. If we move on to the next slide, please. So a huge amount of excitement around the start of uh, the 20th century at the idea that there might be uh, civilization living on Mars, but it quickly died away. Um, and people's attention turned to Venus. For a long time, people thought that maybe Venus uh, also uh, housed some kind of uh, advanced civilization. Um, but unfortunately, it was also quickly discovered that Venus's uh, atmosphere was way too thick and, and the pressure inside and the temperature inside uh, its planet was way too high for any advanced civilizations to be living. And the sort of start of the actual SETI era, as it were, so where there, there started to become some, some real uh, focus on the idea that there is uh, extraterrestrial intelligence living elsewhere in the universe outside our solar system uh, and how we might be able to communicate uh, with it. Um, the start of that era really sits with these three uh, fine gentlemen over here. So the first person we have on the left is uh, Giuseppe uh, Cocconi, and then in the middle we've got Philip Morrison, and on the right uh, we've got Frank Drake. And uh, the first two of these, uh, Cocconi and, and Morrison, uh, they basically wrote uh, a paper in 1959, uh, which pointed out that actually telescope uh, technology was getting to the stage where if there were uh, advanced intelligences living out there in space, and if those intelligences wanted to get in, in contact with us on Earth, as it were, or any, any other kind of uh, civilizations out in the universe, by sending out signals into space, uh, we were kind of getting to the point of having the right technology to be able to detect those signals. And they uh, identified uh, a certain area of the electromagnetic spectrum which they kind of said, well, if there are aliens out there who wish to try and get in contact with us and are trying to send us signals, here's an area of the electromagnetic spectrum that they're most likely to actually be trying to get in contact with us uh, via. Uh, so this is kind of where we should be searching if we want to search for attempts at communication by other civilizations living in, in the Milky Way and in the rest of the universe. Um, and until that paper was, was kind of launched, the idea of, of, of trying to search for other civilized intelligences uh, in the rest of the universe had a bit of a bad rep. Uh, the whole sort of incident around Lovell and uh, the canals on, on Mars, um, you know, showed how much hysteria and how much hype could be created 
behind the idea of intelligence without there actually being any sort of scientific backup uh, behind it. And it was really this paper by uh, Kokoni and Morrison uh, that brought SETI back into sort of a, a little bit more of scientific respectability, really. And about the same time that they actually issued their paper, the guy on the right there, so Frank Drake, um, was a young researcher and he was uh, actually setting up the very, exactly the kind of experiment that Kokoni and Morrison were talking about in their paper in order to search for uh, potential signals from uh, intelligent species elsewhere in the galaxy. Um, but he'd been doing so kind of in secret, basically, because there was this kind of stigma around the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But as soon as his paper came out, he was kind of like, wow, okay, now I can start talking about my experiment. And um, he did so. He announced that actually uh, he was intending to carry out exactly the kind of experiment that Kokoni and Morrison had been talking about in their paper. And suddenly there was a bit of momentum behind the idea that actually this was a, a real kind of scientific discipline. And a year later, after he'd, he'd done his experiments uh, in 1961, Frank Drake uh, actually organized a, uh, a conference, the first conference that looked into the idea of uh, searching for extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, and many of you may have heard of the Drake equation. Uh, the Drake equation is basically an equation which attempts to estimate the number of uh, advanced civilizations in our galaxy that we could uh, get in contact with. Um, and essentially, the topics that formed uh, the agenda for that conference uh, actually uh, generated, as it were, uh, that Drake equation. Um, so if you know about the Drake equation, that's where, where it actually comes from. Next slide, please. We have to, however, at, at the start of, of uh, the sort of modern era of, of, of SETI, uh, we have to also talk about Russians. Um, so this was uh, this is uh, Yosef Shlovsky, um, who was a, a Russian scientist, and he produced a book uh, that was extremely popular in in Soviet Union time uh, in the early sixties, uh, which is about universe life and mind, and it really explored how. The physics of the universe uh, led to life and intelligence uh, and sort of, you know, coupled those concepts together, really. And it was one of the first kind of um, holistic treatments of, of that entire subject. And it caused a lot of interest in the Soviet Union uh, in the idea that there could be other intelligent species living out there and that we may actually be able to communicate in, with them in the long term. And to start with, in the Western world, there really wasn't that much funding for SETI research. So a lot of the early scientific research into SETI uh, was actually carried out by Soviet scientists uh, in the Soviet Union um, for the first decade, uh, really, of, uh, of, of SETI research. If we move on to the next slide. In 1975, NASA finally started funding uh, research into SETI, its own program looking at the possibility of trying to detect signals from extraterrestrial civilizations living elsewhere in our galaxy. Um, and shortly after that, in 1977, uh, we had this phenomenal event, uh, which again, many of you may have heard about, the, the detection of the so-called wow signal. So the object in, in the lower half of your picture here, that thing that sort of looks like a half-constructed kind of football stadium, I suppose, uh, is actually a radio telescope. 
It's the so-called Big Ear Telescope um, in Ohio, which actually has, has been demolished since, uh, but it was called the Big Ear uh, Radio Telescope in, in Ohio. And uh, one summer in, or one uh, evening in summer of 1977, uh, while trawling through uh, the data that had been collected by this, this telescope, uh, researchers came across um, this extremely bright uh, and um, very uh, narrow beam signal uh, coming from somewhere in the direction of the constellation, uh, constellation Sagittarius. And it was so strong um, that the person who was trawling through the data at the time circled that signal, as you can see in the top there, and wrote wow next to it because he was just like, this is incredible. Uh, this is such a, a, a strong feature. Um, and uh, he immediately actually realized that this had the features of uh, a potential um, signal from extraterrestrials, uh, which it, it matched the features of, 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 of the type of signal that um, scientists working in the field uh, predicted that extraterrestrials would actually um, kind of send out there, as it were. Um, now, the trouble was, of course, that back in those days, um, the person who was drawing through the data was actually looking through the data a couple of days after it had been um, actually received by the telescope. Um, so there was no way to actually follow up on the signal and try and kind of ascertain whether it was truly a signal or whether it was an artifact, whether it had been caused by some form of interference with the telescope. There was absolutely no way to actually confirm and verify whether the signal was truly artificial or whether it was, uh, a, you know, a kind of uh, just a, a one-off kind of uh, detection of noise or something like that or interference from another source. So the actual, the nature of this signal, this wow signal, uh, has never actually been uh, confirmed. There have been many theories um, ranging from um, alien signals, of course, through to it potentially being from a comet that's been discredited. Uh, most people these days believe that it was actually uh, interference in, in the actual uh, signal itself, and it wasn't a real feature from, from outside of our Earth, as it were. Uh, but nevertheless, it remains unexplained, and it's probably actually the best candidate for an extraterrestrial signal that we have at the moment. If we move on to the next slide. Now, unfortunately, after the WOW signal, um, 16 years after that, um, there were no, you know, um, big detections, nothing that really uh, sort of uh, could equal the wow signal uh, in terms of uh, the likelihood of it actually being a real kind of extraterrestrial uh, signal. And in the midst of uh, kind of a tightening of fiscal uh, belts uh, in the early 1990s, um, the, the SETI program that was run by NASA became a bit of a political hot potato. And in 1993, uh, it actually ended up uh, being scrapped completely. The funding was cut for NASA-funded SETI, and the SETI program, uh, as run by NASA, completely uh, was, was undermined. However, at the same time, um, astronomers were really starting to approach the, the, question of the, the question about life in the universe from the bottom up and having more ways to do so. So in 1992, uh, this is an artist's impression of the first extrasolar planet that was detected. Um, and this was uh, a planet that was actually, um, or a, a system of planets actually, that were orbiting 
the dead remnants of an extremely massive star. And this, uh, this dead remnants is, is something known as a pulsar. Um, and these uh, planets were detected uh, by the effect that they had on the spinning of, of this, this small object, this thing called pulsar. Uh, and uh, we were able to actually detect it with the first extrasolar planets um, uh, in, in our Milky Way. And, you know, this, this was um, not quite as exciting, of course, as actually finding extraterrestrials and, and uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, but it was nevertheless a huge first uh, kind of stepping stone uh, in our, our kind of quest for discovering life elsewhere in the, in the universe. And really sort of extrasolar planet hunting um, became, you know, uh, quite a, a, a big focus in astronomy after that and, and has remained a focus ever since, of course. Next slide, please. And in 2009, uh, the Kepler Space Telescope, which we have here, uh, was launched. And really, Kepler was uh, intended primarily to, well, not primarily, entirely to actually search for uh, extrasolar planets and to increase the number of known extrasolar planets uh, in our local um, galaxy or in, in local areas around our, our galaxy. Um, and by the time the Kepler uh, had completed its mission, we ended up uh, where we are these days of around uh, 4,000 known uh, extrasolar planets. Um, and that's quite an incredible uh, kind of uh, place to be, really. Um, and next slide, please. And the thing is, of course, that, you know, where we've got to with, with uh, telescope technology these days, um, we're even actually able to, and this blows my mind, I, I just love this. Every time I see this, this image, it's, it's just fantastic. We're even able to actually directly image planets themselves. So this is a system uh, where you can see four planets. It's actually, uh, if you search this out online, there's, there's a short video, which unfortunately we weren't able to play at this time, but it doesn't matter. Um, but there are four planets around the star, and you can actually uh, see the time-lapse of this system. So you can see them actually moving around the star, which is a truly phenomenal thing. It, it, it's well worth a, a Google if you, if you get time. Um, but if we can actually image these, these planets, we can also then look at the light from the planets and break it down into its constituent spectrum and look at those spectrums for dark absorption lines, which reflect uh, the uh, presence of, of certain uh, atoms and certain elements and certain molecules. So what that means is that we now actually have the technology to start looking at the atmospheres of planets and determining their composition, uh, which is a really incredible thing, this idea that you can look at planetary systems outside our own and be able to actually start studying the composition of the, the actual atmospheres of those planets. Um, there are other techniques you can use as well. So if a planet passes in front of its host star, you can see a change in the uh, spectrum of the, the star itself, uh, which helps you to uh, infer uh, knowledge about the composition of the, uh, the planet's atmosphere as well. Um, so we're really moving into an era where not only do we, uh, are we able to detect extrasolar planets, but we're also able to start studying their atmospheres. And this has really huge consequences or implications for our search for life elsewhere in the universe as well. Um, because there are certain uh, elements, certain molecules that 
do not exist easily in nature uh, in non-biological uh, kind of settings. So uh, elements like or molecules like ozone, for example, um, are produced by biological activity. And if we move on to the next slide, many of you will remember a couple of years ago now, uh, the sort of controversy that, um, or the excitement that was generated around the potential detection of uh, an, a molecule called uh, phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, which many believe or is a very good candidate for uh, one of these kind of um, uh, signatures of biological activity in the atmosphere of other planets. And we call these, uh, these, um, these spectral kind of features, these things searching for that might indicate the presence of uh, biological activity. We call them biosignatures. Um, and if we move on to the next slide, in the coming years, we're going to have a really fantastic opportunity uh, to start really studying in detail extrasolar planets, looking at the composition of their atmospheres and trying to find some of these biosignatures that are evidence of biological activity actually happening, or could be, sorry, evidence for biological activity happening on these planets. This, as, as many of you I'm sure will know, is the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, uh, which is essentially the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, it's been an extremely delayed mission, but it's it's soon to go. <laughs> we, we, it's, it's almost there, thank goodness. Uh, and it's going to follow up uh, Hubble. Uh, it's going to be the successor to Hubble. And it's going to produce some really fantastic images of the universe. And the, the, uh, the, the dish at the back of the telescope here, so actually at the moment the, the, the full kind of mirror at the back of the telescope isn't, isn't fully uh, extended. Um, but its overall size is going to have about 10 times the uh, light collecting uh, area of Hubble, uh, which will make it an absolutely fantastic uh, instrument for astronomy and for unraveling our understanding of, of the universe. And as I say, you know, one of the key things that we're really excited about with the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be its ability to actually look for these biosignatures, uh, try and study the composition of planetary atmospheres in other planetary systems other than our own and try and see if there's any evidence there of biological activity through these so-called biomarkers. Now that's all fantastic, um, but of course if we detect these, these uh, biosignatures that would be an incredible moment for all of humanity, you know. Um, it's always very difficult uh, even with fairly well-defined biosignatures to say for absolutely sure that this represents uh, life and this, this, this demonstrates absolute concrete evidence that life exists. Um, but if we do end up detecting strong signals of, of, of biosignatures uh, from planets that look habitable, that exist within habitable zones of uh, nearby stars, that would be a truly kind of uh, momentous uh, moment for, for everybody. Um, but of course, the dream is, is about detecting other civilizations as well, other intelligences that are similar to our own uh, as humans on Earth. Um, and amazing as it would be, I think there are still some people out there who would still be like, okay, that's great, but we need to get the next step further. We need to understand if there are other civilized civilizations out there, other intelligences, as it were. And if we move on to the next slide. So 
Um, how are we going to do that? Um, so there have been several things that have been suggested in the past uh, that are now entering the sort of realms of possibility for us to st start studying. Um, and this quite dramatic picture here uh, is of uh, a structure, a megastructure, uh, or a, sorry, a hypothetical megastructure uh, known as a Dyson sphere. And actually the idea of a Dyson sphere was something that was uh, first thought about as a thought experiment back in the 1960s. And the idea essentially is that this is a huge kind of uh, structure that is built around the host star of a planetary system by an extremely advanced kind of uh, alien uh, civilization. Um, and that structure serves as a way of, of harvesting the energy from the, uh, from the star itself and providing the means for that advanced civilization to do whatever it does. Um, now, uh, this, this idea of a Dyson sphere, as I say, was, was, was suggested as a sort of thought experiment back in the 60s, but we're now actually in a place where we can, um, we have the means potentially to start detecting uh, some of these structures, uh, if they exist, of course. Um, so actually, the, uh, the Kepler Space Telescope that I mentioned a few slides back, um, it, it's essentially operated by uh, keeping watch on a huge number of stars and, and keeping uh, track of them. And by measuring their brightness uh, very carefully over time, um, there were some stars actually uh, that uh, were uh, that had very strange kind of dips in their brightness. Um, and some people have, have proposed that actually uh, these dips in brightness may have been caused by things like a Dyson sphere, actually, a megastructure that is built by an extremely advanced civilization uh, around a host star to harness that energy uh, and to use it for extremely advanced kind of applications. Um, none of these kind of sections, these candidates, obviously, you know, uh, most of them we believe are actually uh, other explanations such as dust getting in the way of, of the light from the star, of course. You know, we have no absolute concrete kind of uh, candidates yet. But this is, you know, one way in which we could potentially in the future actually be starting to find uh, kind of evidence for extremely advanced civilizations by looking at uh, sort of variations in the brightnesses of uh, individual stars out there in, in the Milky Way. Now, I just mentioned um, the biosignatures, the idea that we can detect kind of uh, spectral signatures uh, in the atmosphere of planets. Um, and that's great for biology, but actually we can also extend that idea uh, to the idea of technosignatures, uh, which are essentially apply the same principle. So they're looking for uh, certain atmospheric constituents that instead of them only being able to be produced by biological activity or most likely being able to produce by biological activity, they're actually things that are produced by technological activity instead. Um, so on Earth, for example, uh, our technology produces, uh, or we have produced things like chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, uh, which are, you know, um, things that are produced through technological processes and not natural uh, processes, and also not necessarily biological processes. So we can actually also use the principle of uh, biosignatures to detect uh, the outputs of technology as well, uh, potentially at least. And there are a number of, of these, these uh, technosignatures in terms of spectral uh, detections 
uh, that we can also be looking at uh, when the James Webb Space Telescope actually comes online and we start to be able to do that research on these extraplanetary systems. Next slide, please. One of the ideas that I really like and kind of uh, got me interested, I suppose, in, in writing about this subject uh, in particular, um, we, we now obviously have a very detailed kind of um, study program of uh, the planets and other bodies uh, in our solar system. And um, the image we're looking at at the moment uh, is an image of Mars. And uh, the two things that we've, we've got um, kind of pointed out there, uh, potentially the Mars 3 lander, which was a Soviet lander, uh, launched in 1971, which did actually reach the surface of, of, of Mars, but failed very soon after it had landed, and potentially uh, part of its, its assembly as it was descending. And um, if you go to the next slide as well, here we have another slide, which uh, is another image of Mars, <clears throat> which contains images potentially of the Beagle 2 spacecraft, uh, or lander, should I say, its parachutes and again part of the assembly overall. And the reason that we're showing these images is that um, we now have so much coverage and so much imagery of, of other some other bodies within uh, the solar system that we can start to see very small details on the surface. And there's this rather wonderful idea, which is that if there are um, advanced civilizations out there and they have sent spacecraft out into the universe and out into the furthest reaches, there's just a possibility that some of those um, spacecraft could have actually entered our own solar system and ended up actually crash landing on uh, Mars or the moon or some other bodies uh, in the solar system. And um, there's this idea, it's a genuine idea, it's, it's one that NASA has looked at uh, and uh, and that has been proposed to NASA for future missions um, of actually searching planets and uh, some moons in our solar system um, for the, uh, the, the remnants of, of alien spacecraft. And if we were to discover those, of course, I mean, that, that would also be a, a very clear indication that there was other civilizations out there in the universe and a really fascinating uh, discovery that would really kind of uh, transform uh, our view of, of us and, and our place in the universe. Okay, if we just move on to the next slide. But the sort of traditional, more traditional kind of uh, approaches to searching for extra, um, <laughs> extraterrestrial intelligence um, are not over. So the SETI program still exists. It's run uh, through uh, private institutions these days rather than government funding. Um, but what we're looking at here is a proto-type uh, telescope uh, known as Panosetti. And the idea here is that uh, they actually want to be able to create a number of observatories around the world that collectively are able to image the entire night sky continuously. And the idea really is that uh, another way in which advanced civilizations may want to try and announce their presence out to the rest of the universe is to send uh, extremely powerful laser pulses out into space. And uh, the Panacetti project um, would be searching the entire night sky or keeping an eye on the entire night sky in order to try and pick up 
some of these these potential laser pulses signals um, um, when they occur and be able to catch them. And then, of course, if we move to the last slide, we've also got the more traditional approaches. So going back to the first experiments that uh, Frank Drake did, for example, the same principles of those looking out into the night sky at radio wavelengths to try and find uh, radio signals uh, being emitted from uh, alien uh, civilizations um, by using these massive radio arrays. So this is the Meerkat array, which is a kind of uh, precursor to a much larger system known as the Square Kilometer Array, which is due to come online somewhere in the late 2020s, so in the next decade or so. Um, the really interesting thing about this is that um, it has the potential uh, to pick up radio transmissions from other civilizations rather than depending on other civilizations trying to send out signals to Earth. So, I mean, obviously on Earth here, um, you know, we emit a whole huge amount of radio transmissions into space all the time uh, through telecommunications and news and whatever. Um, but that's ambient, so we're not trying to beam it out there in order to announce our presence to the rest of the universe. It's just stuff that is a byproduct of, of our daily activity. And the idea is that, you know, as you scale up the size of, of radio telescopes and, and radio arrays, that you might be able to actually pick up on that ambient noise from uh, another civilization out there. And as I say, this, this square kilometer array is, is due to be coming online in the next decade or so. And it's not going to be dedicated to SETI, but if SETI can get some time using this telescope, then they're obviously going to be really keen to be able to actually kind of look out into space and see if we can pick up anything that looks like ambient noise. And I think that's it. That's the, the end of the slideshows. But I mean, I, like I just kind of close by saying, um, it sort of goes without saying, right? That if we did discover uh, another uh, or evidence of other civilizations out there, I mean, what an incredible kind of um, thing that would be, a moment for humanity. Um, it'd be really interesting to think about, you know, what that would mean for us and, and, and how that would change our view of ourselves. Many people have, have thought about this, discussed it, whatever. Um, but actually the moment of, of, of actually finding that signal, uh, I really wonder, especially at this moment when, you know, there are so many existential threats uh, facing humanity at the moment. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really fascinating to think about what impact that would have on us as, as a species. Um, and in some ways, perhaps we even need it so we can all pull together and, and kind of look after ourselves on this planet a little bit better. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Piers, for another incredible talk on tonight's show. I hope everyone tuning in enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, it's been absolutely great having you on the show. Once again, if you guys haven't got your hands on Piers' first book, Short Stories of Space, head over to Space Doll's website and grab your own copy. If you've missed anything on our previous talks, head over to youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live to tune into uh, all, our, all of our talks and roundups over there. Now, before we sign off tonight, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the really interesting topics you spoke about. Um, and you mentioned how in kind of the 19th century, how observation of Mars and the straight lines kind of created excitement. Do you think um, maybe with the square kilometer array coming online in the next five to 10 years, 
is there going to be something that creates that level of excitement? I, I, th I think there, there absolutely will be. That you know, you always have kind of um, borderline cases that yeah. um, you know, even if you you cannot confirm, as it were, something in particular. Um, you're going to get sources that you kind of say are particularly interesting. I mean, yeah. I talked about those those potential uh, detections of, of of Dyson spheres, right? You know, there are at least three of those that still remain kind of like, are they? Aren't they? We think that we think that it's just you know it's better modeled as a a, a cloud of, of dust rather than a natural megastructure. It doesn't have, you know, the right profile in terms of how the light from the host star actually varies, but it's still there. And as long as there's that possibility, you know, yeah. there'll be people who will be fascinated enough and excited enough to, to really kind of grasp onto it, I think. Awesome. Yeah, hopefully there is something uh, exciting in the world of astronomy um, in the next five to 10 years. Now, speaking of um, everyone getting fascinated by looking up into the night sky, um, I'll hand over to you to speak about um, the astrophotography competition. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I mean, um, so the, the short stories of space that you, you held up earlier, like the, the cover photo for that book is actually uh, an amateur photograph. It's a, a fantastic, high quality amateur photograph. And uh, one of the things that I was really excited about with the idea of, of doing this book series was actually also using it as a bit of a pedestal for um, an opportunity, I suppose, for uh, astrophotographers, amateur astrophotographers, to showcase their their work. Um, so uh, from the start of uh, uh, October, <laughs> whatever it was, um, <laughs> we've been uh, we've put out a, a competition uh, which we've advertised across the UK, uh, UK astronomy societies across uh, across the nation. Um, asking for entries essentially uh, that could be used for uh, the artwork for uh, the next book in the series. Um, there's a 200 pound top prize. And uh, of course the most you know interesting and, and hopefully exciting thing is that it gets to be featured uh, in the book as well. Uh, but that's open at the moment. The deadline for applications is actually the 1st of December. So it's very close. Uh, and I, th I think we might have put the email address somewhere. So if anybody's listening who actually has a really good astrophoto and, and wants to send it in, then uh, you've still got time to do so until the 1st of December. Definitely, yeah, we'll send the email. You can send your uh, photos to in the comments shortly. Um, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about your second book. When's that coming out? Uh, so target at the moment is April next year. Uh, which is also, however, the time that I'm supposed to be getting married. So <laughs> I have to be right a little bit kind of, yeah, exactly. But April is 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 when I'm I'm hoping for that to come out. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll love to have you on the show again um, after the launch of your second book. Has, has it got a name? Has it got a title yet? Well, so the thing is that I I, I really like, <laughs> it's really boring, but I really like the idea of short stories of space being a bit of a a, a, like a brand in a and of itself. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's literally, at the moment, it's just short stories of space too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Great. Well, I really look forward to getting that. Um, it's been, once again, great having you on the show tonight. Thank you, everyone who's tuned in. Thanks again if you're watching this on Catch Up. Remember, um, you can tune into our talks every Thursday 
and our space roundups every other Tuesday with space experts and astronomers Nick and Terry. Uh, we'll be back with a final roundup of the year next Tuesday at 7.30pm right here on our YouTube channel. Make sure you share that with anyone who is interested in space, with your family, your friends, your work colleagues, wherever um, you are across the world. Piers, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, take care. Have a good evening. And we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Keep well, everybody. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Space Store podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Talks and be part of the Q&A every Thursday at 7pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season 1, 2 and 3 of the Space Talk and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website, spacetour.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.